Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm glad to welcome to the show one of my favorite songwriters of all time, Shad. Shad is a guy whose career I followed pretty much from the start. He put out his debut album, When This Is Over, in 2005 while he was a student at Wilfrid Laurier University in my hometown, Waterloo. I picked up his next album, The Old Prince, after reading about it two years later in the newspaper and have kept following him since. He's had a, a pretty colorful life for an MC. Born in Kenya, moved to London, Ontario shortly after. He's one of two artists to beat Drake at the Junos in the rap category. He is a multiple Polaris Prize nominee, the host of Q for a year after the Giancomeshi scandal, and now the host of Hip Hop Evolution, a series that's won a Peabody Award and an International Emmy. I caught up with Shad at his home in Toronto to talk about all of that, along with the danger of celebrity, putting fear and ego aside, and of course, new music that's on its way. Here's his story. I was listening to an interview with Cadence Weapon a little bit ago, and I think this was a a come-up show interview, so I have to give credit to them where it's due. Uh, But what he was saying essentially was that the real measurement or the real test for an artist is if you can survive five years, mm-hmm. ten years, and still be doing what you set out to do and start. Yeah. It's been 13 yeah. since your first album came out. What do you make of the way that your career has gone, the path that it's, it's taken you? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's quite a thing to think about, you know, because when I made my first album... I really didn't know if I would make any more. That one felt like, um, so I was, uh, you know, I was 21, 22, working on that album. And then it was also a little bit of a different era where the music industry was this um, sort of this impenetrable thing. But the Napster and these things Mm. were creating these little cracks in the system for independent artists Mm -hmm. so all that to say my sense at the time was like this is amazing I got the chance to make this album but to enter into music as a career is still not super possible Mm -hmm. it still kind of felt like this separate world that you have to gain access to Um, but there are these little avenues now that are opening up you know this is circa 2004 three, four, right. five, right? Yeah. So back then, that was my feeling. I, I didn't anticipate five years, ten years, let alone, you know, maybe not even a second album. Yeah. It was just kind of like, cool, there's an independent scene where if you can find a way to make your own music and book your own shows, you can do some things and, and have a good time. And uh, yeah. And and then I was very fortunate to be able to, like, that was actually, now when I look back at it, it was a really good time. It was around the time he started. You know, it was actually a good time for for artists to be able to, to start a career because you had these opportunities. On one hand, you had these opportunities as an independent artist. And on the other hand, there wasn't a million independent artists. Uh-huh. So it was actually um, a fortunate time for, like, someone like myself or someone like him to kind of get going now when I look back it's like it's kind of crazy to me yeah. like I've just been able to do a lot of things that 
um, I feel grateful for every morning when I wake up. I'm like, yeah, nice. I got to do that and share so much of my story and say so many things. And, you know, I, uh, I did not anticipate any of it. So the goal really was just at the time to do that, that one album and, and see what happened, essentially. That was really all that it was. I was in school. Um, I was wrestling with what a lot of kids wrestle with in school, which is what am I going to do next? Mm-hmm. And what do I actually have the most to contribute to? And a part of me suspected that that was music or something creative. But of course, you never know. So I was just kind of taking steps in that direction and hoping for the best, but not really anticipating anything because that was just the climate at the time was it was like the music business was like this very specific world and you had to gain access to it unless you got lucky and you got in through one of these new little holes in the Mm -hmm. wall yeah i'm gonna ask you throughout the course of this conversation i'm sure stuff you've been asked before Mm -hmm. hopefully some new stuff uh to make it interesting for you but i want to give a a sense of where you're from and what got you to where you are now Mm -hmm. uh grew up in london ontario born in kenya uh parents from rwanda Mm -hmm. um Tell me a bit about your family, what your family is like, um, kind of the, the people around you. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, why don't I begin by saying right now we're in my, uh, my little stacked townhouse in Toronto, and my sister lives across the street now uh, with her family. She's got three kids. So uh, that's, that's my family. Also, uh, my little brother, who is uh, 19, is across the street at my sister's. Mm-hmm. And then I'm here uh, with my wife, and uh, you saw this prenatal yoga, so we got one on the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my parents, yeah, my parents, um, my family's from Rwanda originally. Um, I was born in Kenya. My sister was born in Uganda. My brother was born here. And actually, my parents retired, and they moved back, so they live there now. So um, that's, that's a bit about my family. We came to Canada in uh, 1983. This is, uh, I think, very early in terms of, like, African immigration to Canada, believe it or not. Like, I think around that time, if you were from Africa, or at least from where my parents are from in Africa, like, if you went west, it was for school. Mm -hmm. You didn't go west to move. It was, like, unheard of. Um, And so my parents were kind of early on that wave. Uh, I remember... London, Ontario, like my dad actually started the first African association in London, Ontario, because Mm -hmm. there were so few Africans, you could have one association for like the whole continent. (laughs) We had, you know, and we had events and parties and stuff like that. Now you can never have that in London. You know, there's a whole, you know, Somali community, you know, Ethiopian community, like Sudanese, you name it, right? So that's how much... London has changed and Canada has changed from the time we came here. But yeah, we came straight to London, Ontario. My dad, uh, at a certain point, found work at GM, Mm -hmm. which became General Dynamics. My mom eventually found work at the hospital as a lab tech. And uh, yeah, and uh, we grew up, my sister and I and and my brother. So there was a time, well, a significant amount of time before your brother came around, you would have been the younger brother. You would have been the younger sibling. Yeah, yeah. How much did your sister have to, you know, kind of pave the way for you to have it easier? How much of that was going on? Dude, my life was so easy. (laughs) We also had my two aunts lived in the house with us. So, and then my sister is older and also just like more mature and better. So, like, 
life was just easy, really. I was Charity's brother growing up. That's my sister. She, she was like the overachiever in school, and so she had that reputation? Yeah, she, everyone loved her. She was like super outgoing, still is to this day, like loves people. I love people, and she like, is like, I'm an introvert compared to her, really. Um, so she paved the way in, in many ways. And then like, even in my, even in my career, like it, when I was starting out, like she would go on the road and like tour manage, she would, you know, send out demos and stuff like that. You know, she's our family's manager. So yeah. So she, she helped a lot. Okay. I'm going to throw out some, these are like the ones that are not certain things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I interviewed you last five years ago, so, so I had leftover questions from okay. five years ago that I'm like, oh, I wonder if this is still relevant, or if, or if I, you know, you never know, really know what your sources. Tell me what the significance of Luke and Girls is to you. Does that mean anything? This is this is blowing my mind right now. I think it had Luke to do with girls. a boy band. Yes, Luke and Girls. So. Some of my best friends I grew up with, um, they're, still, they're still in London. And one of them grew up uh, in Ilderton. Yeah. And we were just like, we were, we were fun kids. I'll put it that way. Uh, I think this is a song that, like, he, that, that he made up. But, yeah, but we had, we had many adventures. There was one, one time I remember we invented, uh, like, boy band names for ourselves, but, like, kind of artsy ones. And you were? I think I was, I think I was Romeo Blue. Or maybe I was, we had AKAs though. Uh I think my AKA might have been Last Train Leaving. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Is that a bad rap? Well, not the great, not great rap names. No, they're more like, uh, they're more like art boy band names. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the guy who, who um, came up with uh, Luke and Girls concept, he was Sad Eyes. Uh-huh. I forget what his AKA was. We all had AKAs. Yeah. yeah. So there was that, to my understanding, there was yeah. that song and then Lotto 649 maybe too. Uh, yes, yes. We recorded a, lot, a version of Lotto 649. <laughs> like, the, <laughs> like the jingle. The jingle, yeah. <laughs> we recorded Lotto 649, yeah. Okay. Uh, Black Moses, what does that name mean to you? Um, that's, that's my man Anton. Yeah, so... Before I made solo stuff, I was rapping with uh, this guy, Anton, this group Bread and Water, Anton, I went to high school with, and Niles. Um, and uh, that's, really how, that's really how I started, yeah, was, was with Bread and Water. And uh, so I know those two guys from high school, and uh, we recorded some stuff when I was in undergrad, and, and some of it actually came out on a label in the U.K., in high school? Uh, no, uh, in undergrad. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, Anton, and Niles, yeah. you three yeah. comprise Bread and Water. So That's right. Three MCs, no yeah. DJ. Uh, yeah, so um, Niles produced. He had like a really, like he was early on the Mac, you know, home production stuff. Um, yeah. And he still produces records for people in Toronto now. And then uh, Rejuvenate. I would, I would say was our DJ if we had to perform live. That's Danny, who also went to our school, Danny Ree. So, yeah, that was it. Okay. And, and at the time, what was the goal? Was it just to, to play shows for friends or just rap for friends? Were you 
Were you recording songs on like a home desktop computer? Yeah, that was it. So Niles had the whole setup. It was the first time I'd ever seen a home recording setup. And he had it. He had the big Mac, like desktop Mac, you know, Um, and recording software and stuff. And we'd go to his house. His dad is a photographer, so he had like this kind of live work space. Uh, a little bit south of Oxford, uh, you know, near Richmond. And we would record there. And uh, I don't know what the goal was, you know. Like, again, this was like early days of the internet had created underground scenes. So it was like, we could maybe make music and like put it out online, you know, like ourselves and book shows. And so that was all very exciting. Um, I don't know really what the goal was, but that's that's kind of what we were doing and what our inspiration was. That's cool. There's, um, I think there's a stereotype, mm-hmm. and not that it's always true, mm-hmm. but for parents that come from another country, immigrant parents, I think yeah. no matter where they're from, yeah. they have an expectation for their kids to study hard, get a good job, settle down, be safe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how did your parents take to the nascent rap career as it started? You know what? They... Um, think they were intrigued to their credit they kind of were they were very chill about it and kind of like okay cool I wasn't dropping out or anything right so I think that helped but then at a certain point too I think that they saw how much I cared and I think they were like that's cool you know um I think it helped I didn't drop out and you were in school at the time yeah, yeah, yeah. For business, right? Laurier business? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, to their credit, I think that they were like, oh, the, he like, he really cares about this and, and stuff. So even though it was really, the hard part, I think, for parents, especially for parents from another side of the world, is like, f- f- from their experience, an education is not a given. A good job is certainly not a given. So they struggle with someone like myself having access to that stuff and not taking advantage. That's, mm-hmm. like, really difficult for them to just, like, look at and accept, right? So um, I think that that was probably a challenge for them. But to their credit, I think they really understood that, like, I cared a lot about it. I probably had a lot to contribute to it. I did the school thing, and I think that they were happy about that, and that there was a little bit of security there. Um, yeah. Was the school thing... What was that for you? Yeah. The business, was it just, I need to do something at, at university? Yeah. D- did you have an idea of what, where that was going to lead you? Um, no. So I finished high school. I was like, I got to do something. Okay, cool. So I should do something that has some kind of professional. You know, I internalized that for my parents. Like, you know, I, I, I got to do something with some kind of security at the end of it, you know. So I went in to study business. But... Business is not intuitive to me, and, like, I'm not good at it, and it's, you know, and it's not interesting to me. So, on one hand, I think, so overall, I think it was a good idea, because it forced me to find something that I did care about, you know, for one thing. And then secondly, I still think it was a good education for someone that, like, that kind of thinking is not intuitive. It's like I got trained in it. And so I think it was, it was useful. But my experience of it, I hated it. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, uh, in, in choosing to go to Laurier, is it the idea of being a little bit far away from home, but close enough to come yeah. back? Where was the decision in that? Or had you applied elsewhere? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, okay, I'll, I'll be able to experience being away from home and some of that independence, uh, which is good because, as I was explaining, like, you know, I, I grew up with my sister and my aunts and my parents. Like, life was easy. Like, mm-hmm. I needed to get out of my comfort zone a little bit. Um, but then uh, Laurier has a co-op program. Mm-hmm. So that would help offset some of the costs of going away t- to school. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the appeal was, like, it's a good program. It's away from home. And, but it won't be so expensive because I can work. Right. Yeah. Uh, two important people that you meet at Laurier, mm-hmm. maybe more, mm-hmm. but two, two important to your career, I should say. Yeah. Uh, G and Tilo. Yeah. How did you meet each of those guys, the circumstances for both of them? Mm-hmm. Um, so Tilo was DJing already. Tilo was like known around the school as the DJ. You know, he was entering all the the DMC competitions. I can't remember if he had a radio show or not, but even if he didn't, he would be at the radio station, you Mm -hmm. know, cutting it up and stuff like that. I remember him doing some tutorials and stuff. Uh, So him and I crossed paths in the very small Laurier hip hop community. And he's coming over later today. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know? And then G and I were both in the same program. We are in business. I think we actually first met in first year. I think he was dating someone across the hall. And, uh, you know, we kind of hit it off, and we were, we were cool, and we'd, we'd see each other every once in a while and sometimes study together and crack jokes and whatever. And then, as he tells it, you know, one day in fourth year, someone was like, hey, have you heard Chad's album? And he's like, what are you talking about? And uh, and so he got a kick out of that, and then he got it and got the album, and we kind of started working together. We started learning it all together. Um, yeah, you know your stuff. <laughs> so that album, When This Is Over, the first one, had already been out when you guys met. Yeah. Uh, big ups to 91.5. Uh, <laughs> and that was your sister, really, that, that kind of laid that foundation for you to get that Tell me the story, really, sure. of, of how that album came together. Yeah, so I was um, playing with Bread and Water at the time, but also writing some stuff that I felt didn't really fit in that context. It was a little bit more, a little bit more just personal, full songs. We always wrote stuff together, you know? Um, so this competition came up. Like, uh, my sister got wind of it because she was in London and 91.5 was carried there, too. And it was like this unsigned talent thing. And uh, she was like, you should submit something. And I was like, yeah. But I, you know, I was like, I'm probably not going to. Um, and, so, and sorry, just to interrupt there. Did, did London have its own dedicated hip hop station or was 91.5? Would that have been the one? Because I mean, uh, there, at yeah. the time, there weren't that many, really. No, no I think at that time, it was, it was kind of like when it was starting. I think Flow had just kind of kicked off. Mm-hmm. 106.9 has always been like pretty, you know, yeah, yeah. hip hop and R&B centric, which is really cool. Um, but 91.5 was like in, in Kitchener-Waterloo with the whole Tri-Cities and all the way down to London was like the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that was like commercial radio, but, you know, hip hop based. So um, for my birthday, I think it was, she booked me studio time to record a demo. 
which I did, and then she sent it in to to the competition. They picked finalists, and then we got to perform to for them to pick the winners. And uh, I was like, I won. You know, they picked a guy, a girl, and a group. And yeah. What did you perform? Were those songs that made it to the album, or what? What were you? Um, what was the the qualifiers for you to, w- yeah. to win that? Yeah. So I submitted i get down i wrote i get down and submitted that and that ended up on the album and then uh because we had to do two songs live that's where rock to it came from Mm. so i performed rock to it there and kind of like basically wrote it the night before like arranged it and everything so my friend matthew johnston who plays drums with me uh, I was sitting down with him and kind of playing this guitar riff and rapping. And he was like, he's like, listen, I'll play drums for you. We need a bass player, blah, blah, blah. So that was when I met Ian Coiter, who plays bass for me to this day. He called Ian to come over. And uh, I think Mike Tompkins. Is he your friend from Ilderton or is he? He is also from, yeah, he's from Ilderton. I think he, um, he was beatboxing for me at that performance too. Mm. And he ended up recording my second album, and he's doing huge things now. So uh, that's kind of that's how it all started. When those two songs ended up on the album, I didn't have that many songs. So the fact that your so you, your album comes out and G doesn't know about it, your classmates like, are you the worst self promoting artist <laughs> at that time, or or what what is your plan? The album comes out, what are you doing with it? Yeah. So um, so here's the thing. It's like I won that thing that was like in third year. And then I'm still this way with recording. Like, I don't, I never make, like, video or anything from the studio because I'm like, what if it doesn't work? You know, what if it doesn't work out? What if my ideas don't work? So after winning that, there was maybe two of my friends at school that knew I was working on an album because I didn't want to be that guy that, like, didn't do it. So then by the time it was done... I started kind of selling it out of my backpack. I started uh, trying to put it in some stores on consignment. And I started to try and mail it out to get some press. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of just started to try and hustle it on on my own and see what I could do. See how far it could kind of go. But um, yeah, and and just kind of begin learning. You know, I I started to learn stuff right away. Like... I, I booked a show and was like, oh, man, I can't really do too many of these songs live. And so then that ended up being, okay, I stored that away for when I made a second album. Like, I need to make songs I can actually perform live and stuff like that. So it, that, that was kind of my thinking as, as I got the ball rolling. But, yeah, it, it was a slow thing as far as promotion because I kind of wanted to get it done first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the first show you do that's not in London or, or KW? Mm, that's a good question. Um, first show not in London or KW. I played a lot in Guelph, too, because that's where I was performing a lot with Bread and Water and with something that Bread and Water became that was called Fountain Street Blues Project. So those three places I played. And then in Toronto, my first show in Toronto. You know what? I actually don't remember. I remember some early ones. I remember playing... Oh, my first show was opening for Sadat X at the Alma Combo. And uh, where are we chronologically in your career at this point? This is still 2005. 
this is still pretty early. This is like maybe in the fall of 2005. Um, and then maybe like my third show in Toronto was opening for Common. That was mm-hmm. like uh, 2006. And that like, it's funny when I think about it now because it scares me to think about now. But then I was just so excited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now I'm like, oh man, I shouldn't have been as excited. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's great. And he wore your shirt. You, you had little shirts made up and, uh, and he, he put one on. He's that, he's that dude, yeah. you know, he's that dude that like really, that touches me to think about that. Like to this day, you know, like it, it always, it, it, it's a thing that reminds me of what, how to treat people. Cause you just never know. He doesn't know that he's my favorite rapper, like really, really my favorite rapper. Like, you know, in high school, I idolized this guy. He didn't know that. Mm. He was just like, cool shirt and it'd probably be nice. You know? Mm-hmm. He doesn't he didn't know that I, I won't forget that. Mm-hmm. You know. So you're at the time you mentioned your sister charity is the one who's kind of spearheading yeah. the, the tour managing side of things, handling those duties. Tell me about that time period of, yeah. of going around uh show to show where you can. Yeah, yeah. In a van, booking oh, yeah. stuff, uh maybe you show up and people don't know you yet. Totally small rooms or small crowds yeah that time period yeah man like that's um that's a time period where again when i think back on it it makes me realize that there really is windows of time for certain things because like that would be tough to do now (laughs) you know but then everything was so new and exciting and fun and also I had a certain amount of energy for... So, for example, I w- as I was saying, like that first album didn't have a lot of songs I can play. So I would have to do things in my set, anything I could to just be entertaining. Like just, I'll freestyle for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I'll... Whatever I got to do to entertain. And so that's like a lot of what it was. And we go from place to place. Like if we booked a little mini tour, like five shows, generally one would be good. Like, one. Yeah, like one, <laughs> one in five would be like that's actually a good show. Yeah. Like there's actually like people. It's organized. You know the sound is mm-hmm. fine. Like one in five, I would say would be would be good. Uh, two out of five would be like terrible. Like there's like two people, mm-hmm. and then another two would be somewhere in the middle. That would be the average run, you know, of of like five shows, but. You know, it's music. It's like, it's awesome anyways. Yeah. It just tends to be awesome anyways. And then it's also also new. So if there's a terrible show in, I don't know where, it's like, well, this is the first time I've ever been here. Cool. And right. look at all these new people I'm meeting. Cool. And yeah. Yeah. So Tilo, your DJ, I had asked him before about some of those shows yeah. and some of the crowds. I wanted to know about the smallest crowd. He remembered one, St. John, New Brunswick. He said about three people and the sound guy walked out during the show. Do you remember one that, that got worse than that? Or is that, is that bottom? Uh, that there's others in that realm, you know? So I remember one, I thought he would maybe tell this story. It was like a university of Ottawa, like frosh week thing. And those are always a little bit of a roll of the dice. And uh, this one, there was like, <laughs> we were on this stage and there's a big field. And then behind the big field was like a half pipe and people were like skateboarding and doing tricks and stuff. And 
the whole crowd just went to the half pipe. Like, there was like, I don't know if there's anyone in front of the stage. Maybe two people. Maybe two people. Yeah. Yeah, I totally forgot about that one. Yeah, yeah, the sound man. The sound man left. So the, the Frosh Week is a challenge because you don't know if they're there for you or just because it's Frosh Week. Is that it? Well, it's also, you don't know um, what they've signed you up for. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They've booked you. Okay, cool. And there's a level of organization to it. But you don't know if they signed you to play the luau foam party right. when you show up. Right. You don't know if you're actually playing the proper Frosh Week concert. Right. You don't know if they've stuck you in the back of the dining hall. Like, you just don't know, right? And especially, like, at that time, uh, yeah, no one knew who I was, so I wasn't any kind of draw. So, yeah, they could absolutely just throw me anywhere. So that's that's the the tricky part. You actually just don't know what you are performing at. Uh, so 2000, 2007, I think, if my timeline is right, is when The Old Prince comes out. Mm-hmm. So that's when I first heard about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were in an article, if you remember from your time at in Waterloo, they have a, a paper, they have like a nightlife section. Okay. Uh, so you would have been featured in that as like a little album write-up kind of thing. Okay. Uh, and got your album on a whim, thinking, okay, who's this guy? Yeah. Um, you had recorded most of that album in Mike Tompkins' basement. Correct. Tell me about the spirit of that album and its creation. Mm-hmm. So at that time, Mike Tompkins, that people might know from you know all of his YouTube videos, I think he has one of the most, um, one of the biggest subscriber bases of like any YouTuber in Canada right now. Um, but at that time, he was like 19 or 18. He was you know one of my very good friends' little brothers and uh, had been big into music big into uh, beatboxing, hip-hop, production. He was going to OER. That's the Ontario oh, yeah. Institute, uh, something recording technology. Yeah, remember recording technology. It's, it's, it's yeah. one of the main, yeah, recording, you know, engineering schools um, in, in Ontario. And so, and I had just finished at Laurier and, you know, was kind of touring uh, when this is over, seeing what I could do and it was time to make something else. So him and I hooked up. It was like, all right, so let's do this. And he had a studio in his basement. And what I remember is driving out there to Ilderton uh, on a regular basis and kind of chipping away at this thing. Now, I still, I still don't feel really like I know what I'm doing in the studio, but back then I really did not know what I was doing. And so, but fortunately, like he's an experimental kind of guy and a free spirit and we were friends so we could try things and we tried a lot of things. Um, and so, yeah, so the vibe was like, he's a hard, he's a hard worker and he can focus and he can zone in. Um, but also like, I certainly didn't know what I was doing. He was still learning what he was doing and yeah, you know, and we figured something out. Yeah. So old Prince still lives at home. Yeah, yeah. You were living at home at the yeah, time. Totally. Yeah, totally. I was living at home at the time. That one was a fun one to work on with Mike. You know, like he was just kind of down for what we could do. You can actually hear him on that song, kind of talking to me from the booth and stuff. So that was when we played around with a lot in terms of like the execution. And yeah, I was I was living at home. Yeah. Yeah. In like early mid 20s yes. uh what, what was the feeling like being back at home after being gone for your undergrad having yeah. a bit of that freedom yeah. being under your parents roof again yeah it was 
it was interesting, you know. It was it was cool. I wanted to come back home because, you know, I was I was fortunate to have that base. I can come home, I can live at home, mm-hmm. rent free, see if I can kick something, get something going with my music, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it feels funny having lived away for so long and like being a fully full grown adult and like living at home. Um, and then it's interesting to look back on because I think it. it that phenomenon is very common now. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, but at the time, it was, I don't know, it felt like a new sort of conundrum. You, you might have been the, the trendsetter <laughs> that album. It, made, it makes it okay for people to live at home. Yeah, it was like, uh, well, that was the beginning of that era, you know? <laughs> Millennial whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that song was was really fun to work on uh, with Mike, but that was the era. That was the feeling at the time, and especially when I was recording that album. So I had been home for you know a year and a half, two years, and it was that sort of sense of, all right, well, now it's you know what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, I was still trying to figure it out. Um, stuff was cool with music, and it was fun, but it wasn't a self sustaining you know career yet. So did that album take you to the states or overseas to europe Uh, when did when did those things come um i first performed in the states yes i would say about a year after that album came out yeah Yeah, it was around the time i started to to play in the states again that was a time when borders were felt more real you know than now with again like the internet and and stuff it's like yeah, borders felt a lot more real. There was a kind of Canadian music world, and there was, you know, America, and it was harder to get over there and mm-hmm. play and make inroads and stuff. So that didn't happen until, yeah, at some point, maybe a year after The Old Prince came out. And are you still booking your own shows, or do you have somebody doing that on your behalf by then? Uh, by then, I had a, I had a booking agent. Um, so, yeah, my career was kind of starting, yeah, and especially The Old Prince really kind of helped establish something. But even that took a while. It wasn't like right when it came out. You know, it was like it took a while for people to get wind of it and to hear it and um, make videos and stuff to help promote it and stuff like that. When did music first take you to Europe or to another continent? That was my third album. TSOL. TSOL. That was the first time I went to Europe. And that was super cool. Like, there was this one DJ that I love to this day, Chem, in uh, Cologne in Germany. And he kind of runs that hip-hop scene. And I went to his party. And, you know, he's playing all these classics and the popular songs of now. And then he, like, plays Rose Garden. And everyone knows it. Because he does it's just always, it's in his mix. And so he's just, like, put people up on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa. I remember me and Tilo were like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, so that was when that happened. Yeah. Maybe backtracking a little bit. So mid twenties, old Prince comes out, you're working away on music, Mm -hmm. but maybe things are still a little bit uncertain or Mm -hmm. tenuous as to whether it's going to amount to something. Now, meantime, you've already been through university. You have Mm -hmm. classmates who are now landing jobs and and starting families and careers. How much of that, uh, is kind of nagging away at you of, of the, I think the, we can't help but compare ourselves to others. Totally. What's that? What was that like? Yeah, totally. That is the mental, how can I put it? 
that's the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. I think for artists, and that was the, a challenge for me, was remaining focused on what I was doing and, and, and feeling grounded in why I was doing it. Um, but it's tricky, man. It's really hard, you know? And I was living in London, and London is um, uh, conservative in the true sense of the word, of, like, people tend to follow a certain path mm-hmm. in life that is the path that other people follow, you know? And so feeling, living with a sense of, I kind of want to follow a different path is difficult, especially in an environment where that's not common. So I was feeling that and, and the challenge, the daily challenge was just remembering what I want to do and why. But it was a challenge for sure. Mm. Yeah. When, when was the first time you felt reassured or some sense of like this, this is paying off or it has paid off yeah. if that came to you? Yeah. So like, man, I was, I was working hard on the album. I was trying to, you know, quiet any other voices, but I was still like, I got to hedge my bets here, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so, you know, I applied to school at Simon Fraser. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I'm making this album, I'm going to put it out, but I really don't know. At the end of the day, I'm making underground hip-hop. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Got to be realistic. So, and then when the album was done, I still felt like, I still felt like this is an underground rap album. Yeah. Hopefully people like it, but, you know, there's not too many of us doing, doing okay. I think the first kind of... Um, my first sense of like this is paying off is like kind of started to roll like there was a lot of there was a lot of good press reception to the album there were opportunities i toured with classify that was my first mm-hmm. tour like cross country tour mm-hmm. um so that happened you know through that album um and then we got to make videos and some of them did really well and you know juno nomination polaris nomination and that all of that really helped. And then, mm-hmm. and then, of course, once you start making a living, you're like, okay, yeah. okay, I guess this is... That, that, you know, unfortunately, is kind of feels like the final real, like, okay. All of that stuff was super, super encouraging. Mm-hmm. But I think when I could, you know, support myself and not incur more debt was, you know, the final sort of like, okay... That, that kind of quiets the voice in the back of your head yeah, yeah. of the one that's sounding the alarm bells yeah. of <laughs> what am I doing right now? Yeah. 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 And like, exactly. I think alarm bells is, is a good word because it doesn't ever fully quiet. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? The imposter syndrome never goes away. But at least when you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat though, mm-hmm. that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 20. 10, I believe, mm-hmm. TSOL comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was a, a, a cool moment for me. I remember the album comes out and you're doing your Canadian tour. Mm-hmm. You have, I think, two shows back in London at the time at Call of the Office. Okay. Uh, so it's a back-to-back kind of thing. This would have been, I would have just gotten like a G2 at the time. And yeah. so I was excited. Okay, it's like a road trip with my friends to go to London. Yeah. And go to the show it's, and, and call the office. You might have a better idea of capacity than I would. Yeah. But if, uh, if you're unfamiliar, if you're listening to this, call the office. Small enough venue, kind of intimate. You're close to the stage. Pretty low ceiling, I think. And so you're right there yeah. all together. 
uh, I was the guy at the time who was rapping, and I was that guy who would rap for artists. I, I would want to rap, go up to a rapper and be like, hey, let me rap for you. Yeah. And so I did that for you like years and years ago, yeah. and that was really cool as a 16-year-old to have that moment. Yeah. Um, did that to Classified too, probably a year or two later. Yeah. What what was a moment like that for you yeah. where you were able to have a moment with somebody, whether it was like a maestro or maybe not a maestro, yeah. but a, a somebody you would have been listening to yeah. to have some of that uh, yeah. validation or a, a moment mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good question, man. I mean, we talked about Common, you know, that was, I didn't get to really chat with him very much, mm-hmm. but... That was really cool. That was like a really, really nice experience for me. Um, Chaos is another one that, man, I to this day, like I just think he's so good. Like Mm -hmm. he's so, so, so good. People, especially us in Canada, we've just grown so accustomed to how to what he does that we forget that it's impossible. You can't Mm -hmm. do that. No one can do that well, uh, except for him. So he was definitely one that getting to know him and getting to talk with him and he's super smart um my favorite chaos stories uh were the fact that i think there was a time when kanye west was a huge chaos fan had exit in his backpack and was trying to meet chaos when he was in toronto yeah and then the fact that prince uh like had a whole interaction with him too i think maybe on a few occasions yeah crazy stories like that oh yeah i mean dude like people don't really get how like you can't make songs like Sunday morning like you can't mm. you just can't like I don't know anyone who can you can't make everything he does and he can do so many genres of music and it feels like hip hop because that's where he comes from no one can do that <laughs> just people try and fail every single day at that you know um so yeah totally getting he he's definitely a guy that I still admire hugely for his 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 musical ability yeah. so it was those two guys a chaos and a common mm-hmm. that you would have met and and been like this is really cool this is happening right now yeah yeah for sure um yeah and now the stories are like escaping me of others but yeah, yeah. they're up there another one uh, i think this happened when you guys were in europe mm-hmm. were you on a train with premiere in the same train car or yeah, yeah. <laughs> were you talking what what was what was going on uh t- totally yeah tila must have told you that, that yeah, story, yeah 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 so we didn't really talk i remember tilo was like sitting beside me and he was just kind of like in my ear trying to bug me to like get him a cd <laughs> somehow or something uh and i think we eventually did get him a get him an album but yeah i mean he is also to me like just a giant of music you know uh but yeah, I don't remember an interaction with him. I think maybe we got him an album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So where, what were the circumstances? Was this like in that Cologne time or was it another time? Um, I can't remember what tour it was, mm-hmm. but we had actually just played the night before with him in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, you know, one of those shows, you don't necessarily meet the other artists, mm-hmm. right? So um, the next day seeing him on the train was like really cool. I think we did talk. I think we did talk a little bit. He was with the rapper that he was working with, and uh, I think we did like chat a little bit. But yeah, that was cool. Okay, so back to TSOL, mm-hmm. 2011. Uh, Junos come around, and Drake is hosting the Junos. He's nominated. It's his first album, yeah. and 
all signs are pointing towards this is his kind of crowning moment. Totally. He's he's uh, risen to the top, and this is going to be a celebration of Drake. You spoil that party. Uh, TSOL wins the rap recording of the year, Juno. Yeah. Um, now, if you have like a LinkedIn resume or like a resume, you're going, is, is it like McDonald's job down here and then like the Q, Q yeah. job and, and um, Hip Hop Evolution somewhere around here and then beating Drake is up here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially like the bigger and bigger he gets. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, right? Like now he is pretty much the undisputed you know, king uh, of the moment, barring maybe the events of the last couple of weeks. But like, whatever, he's still the king mm-hmm. of hip hop. Um, and has been for a, quite a long time now. Like mm-hmm. he's on, he's on, he's on a run. Um, so yeah, so that's like just a hilarious, you know, moment to think back on. Like it was hilarious at the time, though. You know, um, and, and and not to like you know dismiss what I do. Like I think not that all, yeah. you know what what I do is 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 really good. It's just usually not recognized at things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, especially side by side with someone like Drake. Um, who, you know, even then, and like, you know, thank me later, Drake isn't the Drake that he is now, but Mm -hmm. it's still, that was still unprecedented heights for a Canadian rapper. Mm -hmm. It was unprecedented, you know, even then. So, um, you know, so that, that, that's definitely like a nice, uh, a nice moment and funny story. Like, so I, the only story I can tell about that really is like, I was shocked, went up, accepted the award. And uh, so then I'm walking out of that gala with G. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we get out of the gala, we burst out laughing. <laughs> Him and I both just like rolling on the floor laughing. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. They, they didn't give you any kind of heads up that it was coming your way. No, man. I basically had my head down, eating my steak. So there's like the night before. This was at the night before, mm-hmm. which is when they give away most of the awards. Right. And then... Um, so they're announcing the nominees, and uh, they have it all on a big screen. And cool, blah, blah, blah. Uh, my head is down eating my steak. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, this is just great to be here. There's no way I'm beating Drake, mm-hmm. obviously. Not at, um, especially not at, like, an industry awards. Like, this, right. these awards celebrate, you know, yes, the artist and the music, but, like, to my understanding, they also celebrate the industry behind. So, yeah, it goes to who sold the most. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's a tendency of human nature when you have something like that happen, it can very quickly turn into, okay, what's next? Yeah. Or, or all kinds of pressure and expectations that might follow that. Yeah. What was the immediate, or maybe not immediate, but what some of the, some of the aftermath of that for you? How did that, how'd that affect you? You know, um, I, was, I was excited. Um, we, we had a tour booked right after that that was kind of already booked and so that was really really fun because it felt really nice to kind of celebrate that right away Mm -hmm. with fans Mm -hmm. you know fans that um and a lot of my fans have been to many of my shows you know what i mean like they've been around even back then so that was the immediate aftermath was like it felt really nice to kind of like go on this tour of being like Hey, guys, you know, we did something. Right. Uh, we did something fun and interesting. And so that was that. Um, to be honest, I don't think I felt that much pressure after that. I think the only pressure I felt was more creatively, like, 
what do I do next? Not not because I won that award, but because I don't know. Again, like I made the one album, I didn't know I'd get to make more. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, what else can I do? Um, that's that's still interesting. But you know, on the heels of that, I don't think I really felt pressure. I felt like this is really cool to get to celebrate this right away with you know people that have supported mm-hmm. me for a long time. So Flying Colors comes next, and I read recently an interview that you'd done where you talked about how that kind of felt like that might have been the end of something mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah. It felt like that was a very, very satisfying experience making that album and, and being done that album because it did feel like uh, heavy lifting or like, mm-hmm. you know, climbing a big hill. So... There was this sense, and it could have been that, finishing that, a work like that, and then also just time in life. It, it, there was this sense of like, okay, cool. Like, what am I going to explore next? Music is, is here, and I'm going to keep doing that. But I kind of was looking around a mm-hmm. little bit too. Like, what else is on the horizon um but that was a really that was a really great experience but yeah there there was a there was a sense of that though you know it was i would call it contentment yeah it was really a sense of like man i've gotten to say a lot of things and you know even just in this album but definitely over the course of like my catalog i just like feel like man i've been able to say so many things i'm going to keep saying things but i feel really good about that mm-hmm. i just feel really good about it i don't feel like incomplete Mm. with I don't feel incomplete at all yeah I mean I guess the giveaway on that album is put you do a song called thank you which is really it's it's essentially like a a curtain call in a sense or or a feeling of completion Mm -hmm. in some Mm -hmm. senses Uh, I don't think you do that otherwise midway through even if you're still making music it feels like something like that is a a bow being tied up somewhere yeah, yeah, and that's just like a it's just like a deep sense and it manifests itself in songs like that. Like I, I saw this um I can't remember if it was an interview with Q Tip, but he talked about the first three tribe albums as mm. feeling like a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh I saw that recently and I was like, Yeah, I think that's how I felt. You know, it felt like Flying Colors to me almost felt like, yeah, this maybe three album arc or mm-hmm. something like that was kinda like done that sort of statement is done. Um, or at least I feel really good about it right. type of thing. Yeah, and it kind of manifested itself in songs like that, like Thank You or or even the very final song, Long John, just yeah. like, again, like this kind of sense of like saying it all and stuff like that. So you start looking around for new ways mm-hmm. to get involved or new things to, to kind of sink your teeth into. Mm-hmm. And at least the first one that comes out publicly yeah. is the Q role mm-hmm. uh, and and getting into that spot. And that was really cool too as as a hip hop fan mm-hmm. uh, to see that happen because I feel like that was watching that was like a moment where finally it felt like a community was being given a seat at a table where maybe traditionally it hasn't been at the table or maybe even in the room. Yeah. Uh, you get that spot in there. Uh, what What was that like to step into that host chair yeah and um and try something new man that was that was very interesting how that all like came about because yeah it it really came out of an openness to to whatever so 
um, you know, we're all following in the news. This is maybe like 2014 fall or whatever. And, uh, you know, Gomeshi is moved out of that position and, and we're all just watching, you know, from mm -hmm. far. And I cross paths with them like a million, million times. Right. Um, and then I think it was like towards the end of that year, like I get this email of like, would you want to come in and, mm -hmm. and yeah, and I'm in this, I have this sense of just like, okay, like I'll try it or whatever. Um, that would be to interview for it or to do audition. This, this was like, yeah, this was, they didn't quite call it an audition. It was more like, do you want to come guest host for a week? Yeah. It's like, yeah, sure. sounds like fun. I'll try that. Um, and like very quickly that escalated to like more conversations and then it was like, would you want to do it? Um, and again, in this like sense of openness, like, sure, give it a try. Um, yeah. It, and, and it was, so I'm trying to think like to your question of like the beginning mm -hmm. of it and the beginning of it was fun, but like overwhelming like yeah. in 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 a weird sense of like i didn't expect it to be as big of a thing as it was like mm -hmm. i remember i had my first day and it was like it felt like a like a living funeral type of thing like not in a not in a sad way uh -huh. in a way of like there's so much tribute yes. being paid right now yeah. and i'm like this is crazy yeah. uh because you know to my mind i was just kind of starting a job you know right um but uh yeah so that was like the beginnings of it was like whoa this is like a lot but i get it because that show meant a lot to mm -hmm. people and there was a lot wrapped up in it obviously mm -hmm. yeah. did did they ask for a cover letter and a resume or was it was, were you the was yeah. that enough yeah no i think they they just all i got was like an invitation to uh guest host yeah. for a week yeah. you know which um which I understood was something like an audition, but also just like a fun thing to yeah. do for a week. So, uh, yeah. So that's that's yeah. all it was. I don't have a resume. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be real short. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, okay. You're right. That was a, a very hot seat to yeah, step yeah. into at the time. Um, tell me about the challenges of that. The learning on the job in a field that I mean, you you're not an interviewer by by yeah, career totally. uh, to step into that and and have to learn on the fly. Yeah. I liked all that. You know what I mean? I liked the challenge of it. Again, that was like my attitude at the time and that was my that's where I was at was like I'm just open to new things and new uh, learnings. I'm open to, I'm really open to like learning again and not being good at something mm -hmm. and trying to figure it out, you know? Um, and then I really liked the mandate of it too. Like I liked this feeling of like, okay, like my job right now is to, is to try and make this culture and all of its changes and shifts understandable mm. for the Canadian public so they can feel a little bit more grounded and comfortable in their life and like, uh, and informed in their life and, and, you know, uh, and inspired, you know, like I like that whole mandate of it mm. was like, it just felt generous and good. Um, so that, that's where I was at. And like, and so all the challenges that came with it, like I didn't mind mm -hmm. because 
A, I expected it, and B, I invited it. You know, that's that's where I was at. You know, um, so yeah, that's kind of how I felt. What are you proudest of mm-hmm. from that time with the show? I think I'm proudest of the the effort every day. You know, I really liked that challenge of like this requires a level of focus and uh, selflessness every day of like, in, in the true sense of the term of like, I just can't think about me. I have to think about this person that I'm interviewing because they're sharing their story and they're actually in the hot seat. And, um, and I have to like focus on them and then, you know, and then pivot to the very next mm-hmm. person. Um, so I'm proud, I'm proudest of that. And I'm proudest of, uh, really everyone that I worked with because they were super professional and supportive. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm kind of proud of our team and, and like how resilient everyone was. Mm. Yeah. I think this actually came chronologically sooner, the hip hop evolution, mm-hmm. but I mean, didn't premiere until later. Yeah, yeah. How did that come about? Yeah. So you're right. So hip hop evolution was actually almost, almost finished by the time I started Q, the first season filming. I had to sometimes go away on weekends and do a couple interviews for that. But um, that came about because Rodrigo Baskunin, who used to run Pound Magazine, Mm -hmm. and Darby Wheeler that I knew from the Strombo show, he was like a, I think he was a director on that show. They invited me in for a meeting one time. I want to say this is like 2012 or 2013. And they said, we're working on this project with Banger Films, who made... uh, Metal Evolution. And my metalhead friends are like, Metal Evolution is like the one. It's like mm-hmm. the greatest documentary. Um, so they, uh, they're like, we're working with Banger Films. We're making a documentary about the history of hip hop. And it's funny, I like left that meeting and they asked me to host it. And I left that meeting with G and I was like, they're going to kill it. He's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, they're going to kill it. We should do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did. They killed it. Mm-hmm. Like, it was like a, they did an amazing, amazing job. I don't think, you know, and I'm not saying this just because I'm a part of it. I don't think there's a better film document about the, the origins of hip-hop that exists. As a fan of the genre, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're a kid who grew up, I guess by the time you're probably actually listening to music of your own choosing instead of just what's on the radio or what your parents are playing. You know, it's, it's the 90s, and so you're listening to hip-hop come alive in the 90s now you're doing hip-hop evolution you're in the bronx you're at you know 1520 sedgwick talking to cool herc about how it all started you gotta be like what's going on in your mind as that's happening you know that was really really unbelievable i think you can kind of see it in my face in the documentary mm-hmm. like i'm at 1520 sedgwick with cool herc mm-hmm. is wild and really wild to hear his story because from his perspective, you know, he looks out at the, at the park where he used to DJ and the building where he used to DJ and then further out onto the rest of New York and, and in a sense onto the rest of the world. And he's cool Herc and hip hop is everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, you could look to the ends of the earth. There's hip hop over there. Mm-hmm. And I just can't even imagine from his perspective. He's like, yeah, it all started with what I was doing at 14. 
just mm-hmm. playing the records that me and my friends loved and the parts of those records that me and my friends loved in a particular way. And it all comes from what we were doing. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. You know, so for me, it was totally insane. But part of that, part of what was so amazing about it for me was being able to really see it through his eyes, standing side by side with him Mm. and just being like, that must be a trip Mm. to be cool Herc and to just hear and see hip hop everywhere all the time being like, I started that. To not just talk to him, but to talk to anybody who's been involved in this project. I mean, you've gone to different corners of... Uh, the United States to to uh, profile these different artists and be able to speak with them. What has that opened in you? Whether it's a door of of just another area of your fandom, whether it's an itch that's been scratched or or a hole that's been filled. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has that brought to you to be able to uh, be a part of this project? Uh, yeah, I love um, I love kind of getting this this view of hip-hop you know like really starting to understand how the music traveled from person to person and place to place is really cool um aside from the music also just traveling to these places though you know when we started filming was i think like 2013 or something and just some of the places we go to film this is like, you know, an aside from the music. But some of the places we go to film, you see the inequality. Mm. And I remember like coming back and telling my then girlfriend, now wife, like something is going to happen in that country mm-hmm. back then. And then less than a year later, there's protests in Ferguson and, you know, and so on and so forth till the situation that we live in now. But like, that was another interesting, sad thing to observe. But, like, I could feel it palpably, like, this is not good. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of... There's, there's a kind of inequality and a dangerous level of inequality, and I'm like, this is like a powder keg. Yeah. So, in that sense, it was just the, the chance to see the world or, and yeah. see what's going on in another corner of things yeah totally just again yeah you know i'm used to traveling just for music um Mm -hmm. and that ends up being sound check to sound check and you don't necessarily get to spend time in a place but with this you get to spend time when we you know when we go to new york for example for a week or two and we're interviewing people we're going to queens Mm -hmm. we're going to the bronx we're going to staten island you kind of get to go a bit everywhere and talk to people at length and uh, so just from that side of it, even outside of the music, that's a really mm-hmm. enriching experience for sure. 2016, mm-hmm. you uh, come back into the music side of things. You put yeah. out your boy, Tony Braxton. Yeah. And this is interesting because it's a total departure from what anybody would have expected you to do mm-hmm. music wise. Um, was there fear involved in that, in in going out on a limb and saying, you know, this is something I want to do? Yeah. I don't know if it's what you're looking for, but here I am anyway. Totally. Like, that was, again, so I actually started working on that in, like, sometime in 2014. So, again, it was, like, uh, that was my attitude at the time. was, like, I want to try something different. Try something that 
I don't know if I'm good at, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I took singing lessons. I never take any musical lessons before. And that's, that was vulnerable and new and like a learning. Um, but also like, yeah, like I liked that though. I wanted that. I mm-hmm. wanted that kind of like, I want to feel a bit of fear. Mm-hmm. I want to feel a little bit like, I don't know. I don't know if this is right, but I, I feel it and I, I need to try something new. I need to explore right now. And, and I feel like that's kind of an artist's responsibility too, you know, is to do that because a lot of people don't get to do that. Mm. You know, they don't get to take chances. And so I feel like if we don't take chances, no one will take chances. So that also felt like a bit of a responsibility too, to like, I got to try something new. I got to experiment. I got to, you know, do something different. Um, And so, yeah, so I'm really proud of that album and, you know, how hard we worked on it and also like what it is, you know, it's, I like it. It's like, it's, it's sweet and naive and like, I like it. Yeah. Uh, Was that the plan going into it was just to, to put a little bit of, fear back into you like a little bit of the butterflies in the stomach kind of thing i th- i think so and to just to try and do something very genuine uh i also like doing i also just like doing things that are different like as a entertainer hmm. i think part of me is like i want to surprise always i want to surprise like you know um and so but yes from a, on a per- from a personal level yeah, I, I want to be a learner again. I want to be vulnerable again. I want to... Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things, I think this was from that same interview uh, you'd done, I think it's called The City Talking, okay. British, British outlet. Mm. Uh, you had talked about a goal being to be able to put fear and ego aside yeah, you know, yeah. before you kind of get out the door. Um, and those are two really tough things to suppress or to uh, confront mm-hmm. and say, how have you found that in, in your life, you know, as, as you continue along in different chapters of your career and yeah. different life stages to be able to continue to confront, I think, as you say, the imposter syndrome that never really goes away. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like that is to me, that is the work. Hmm. That's how I see it is like, that is the work because you acquire certain skills and like those are there. So like, you know, all I've ever done really is rap. I can rap. Like, Mm -hmm. that's cool. I can do that. If I just work at it, I can do it. If I sit down and write some raps, do a bunch of takes, like I can do it. That's not the work. The work is I need to find something pure to give people. I need to find something. That's the best way to say it. I need to find something pure to give people. Mm -hmm. And I can't do that. I'm distracted by myself. And so that ends up to me being the work. That's every day. That's like the first thing I do, you know, when I wake up is try and put that stuff aside. Um, Because that's how I can contribute. And that's what I want to contribute. And that becomes more and more clear to me. I think that was always there, but it's more and more clear to me the older I get and the further along I get. You know, just the sense of like, I'm not going to be 
I thought I wouldn't make more than one album. Okay, I've made more than one album, but I still know I won't be doing this forever. <laughs> I, I won't be doing this forever yeah, yeah. still, you know? Okay, so maybe I'll make five. Maybe I'll make six. Maybe I'll make seven. But I probably won't make 12, you know? Okay. So while I'm doing this, I want to give, I want to pass on something for real. So, and I think that's a natural thing that you just start to feel more and more. What are you doing when you are actively trying to okay, put fear and ego aside. Yeah, yeah. What are your habits that you're doing that are, are helping in that? Yeah, that's like, that's a spiritual thing for me, mm. you know? So that ends up looking like what people would call prayer or meditation. You know, what it actually tangibly looks like for me is like, I type it out mm. because it helps me focus. So it's, all, it's, like, it's like praying, but I type it out. Mm. And, but even more specifically, like, Part of that, what I'm typing out is, and this is like kind of just like my own little thing that I do, is like part of it is like gratitude. Mm-hmm. Part of it is um, writing down the things that happened in the last 24 hours because mm-hmm. it's amazing what we forget. Mm. Simple facts of what happened, and I try not to color them in any way mm-hmm. just like this is what happened these are good things that happened these are bad things that mm-hmm. happened also the fact of what i'm feeling this is how i feel mm-hmm. right now um and then i try to turn my mind towards like other people mm-hmm. and other things so that's like so that's you know really in detail what my you know spiritual practice looks like so then i start to try and turn my mind to like what are the people that i the people that i care about who are they what's going on with them and then also what is my work and stuff like that so then then i try to like go outward yeah are you writing these with the thought that you're going to go back and read these or is it just the act of writing it that that is the the end result in itself. I try to go back and read it, but I actually never, I rarely ever do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of it is like getting it out mm-hmm. and uh, sorting it out. So uh, yeah, that's really kind of what it looks like for me. I, I try to do that every day. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about uh, not necessarily Anthony Bourdain, but mm-hmm. the but the intersection of being somebody in a public spotlight, in a sense, and trying to uh, create space to be healthy and, mm-hmm. and um, to be mentally well mm-hmm. uh, in, in those twin things which can often seem potentially at odds with each other. Uh, how does anyone be healthy when they are, especially at somebody like his level? I, I don't know. Man, you just ask the question, mm-hmm. you know? You really just ask the question because... We keep seeing this over and over again, and I don't know what it's going to take. Is it, you ask the question, is it inevitable? Mm. Like, is the, this fame thing that we've created, uh, I don't know how many years ago, but actually not that long ago. It's maybe a few decades or like mm. something, I think, um, in the particular way that we've constructed it and made it to be. Um, it's pretty obviously killing people. Mm -hmm. We just see it time and time and time and time and time and time again. 
Most people don't survive it on that level. I've never seen it on that level. Uh, the, you know, most people don't survive it on that level. I've never experienced it on that level mm-hmm. is, is what I meant to say. But, you know, even where I'm at, you know, in my, in my community, there's, there's a lot of people that really struggle. There's a lot of people, period, that really struggle. Yeah. But this fame thing is like, it just, it kills, I don't know if I can say most people, but most people don't survive it. And I don't know when we're going to do something about it. Mm-hmm. I really don't. It's, it's odd because it's, well, it's something that is packaged up and sold as being desirable. Mm-hmm. And yet I think the closer you maybe get to it, you realize, I could really do without any of this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, man. Like, it's, it's really, I don't know if you watch Atlanta. Uh, I've seen, so I've seen the first season. I haven't okay. seen more yet. The second season kind of has an episode that I think really touches on fame in a way I've never seen in television it's really good but yeah man um it is still packaged and sold like this thing that we want even though we just watch the end result over and over and over and over again you know all the grunge people are dead there's like two that are alive Mm -hmm. you know we just watched michael jackson we just watched prince we just watched anthony bourdain all of our heroes every single one that we love you know we, we kill them. I don't know, man. I really don't know. And, uh, of course, like, the music business, entertainment business, there's no, like, HR department or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There's nothing like that. There's no counseling. There's, right. no, there's none of those resources are not anywhere close to being part of our business. So, In that sense, like, I mean, because naturally, I think as an artist – part of you is probably aspiring to, I want to be Drake, I want to be Justin Bieber, I want to be the biggest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Is there a part of you that's glad, you know, I've, I've got this, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at, I don't need the rest of this? 100%, man. I forget who, it was a quality or something you said, give, give me, me the, the fortune, fortune, keep the, the fame. fame, you know, like that, that mentality, or like Lauren Hill was like, all I ever wanted was to sell like 500, you know? Um, because there's a recognition that like that comes at a huge cost, man. Like the couple of times that I've actually met Drake, the thing that struck me the most was I was like, wow, this guy's built for this. He's really comfortable. I don't know how comfortable he is, but like to me, he seemed really comfortable with where he was at. Like, yes, I'm, I want to share my music on this level. I'm comfortable entertaining on this level. And uh, I'm ready for it, you know? And that's rare. Most people aren't, you know? Artists are sensitive. They're, they're sensitive. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the, that's the other thing is I think uh, anybody who is putting something together to then be shared with the world, it's, part of them is like, look at me. Look at what I'm doing, right? To- totally. The need for validation. The need for validation. Exactly, man. That's the complicated part is like, a lot of times it comes from complicated places. There's some performers that are like really healthy and balanced and mm-hmm. they just are talented and they like to share their talent. But the majority are like most people and they're more than a little bit broken. And when they've shared their talents, they've received a kind of validation that they really needed and cling to. And 
look, we, we work in a business where like, look, it's entertainment. So novelty is a part of it. Like mm-hmm. when you're new, that's better. And mm-hmm. when you're not, that's worse. And so you're fighting against that. All that to say your window is not necessarily that big. So if you haven't healed fundamentally whatever wounds are there, you're going to be left worse off than before um, through this whole thing, you know? So that is a big component of it. And I do think, you know, I'm glad you asked the question because I think it's getting to be time mm. that we got to start figuring this, this out. You're working on new music. You have new music to share. Yeah. Um, what are the things that have been percolating in your mind yeah. uh, that's, that's going to end up in this music? Yeah, so this album that I just finished, it's, uh, it's a concept album. It's uh, based on a story that actually kind of occurred to me like many years ago, but this was an opportunity to make it come to life, and it felt really relevant right now. Um, and basically, it's, the album's called The Short Story About a War. And it's the story of this war in this fictional desert planet that kind of occurred to, to my mind. So there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in that story that to me are parallels to our world politically, economically, but also our interior worlds and the kind of turmoil that we live with. Um, that being said, I tried to make sure there are moments of hope and joy in it, too. Uh, there's a, yeah, without getting too far into it, the story, you know, has things in it that allow for that. So yeah, man. So like, it's a lot, it's, it's like, it's like a dense album, but I tried to make it exciting and I tried to make sure that there's, um, I'm, I'm always looking for hope, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's some of that too, but yeah, man, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot in there. Uh, you know, bringing you back full circle a little bit, uh, going to be a father coming up soon. I imagine, yeah, looking for any avenue of hope you can yeah. for, for what this world you're bringing a newborn into. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the emotions around that of, of uh, being a parent or coming up to being a parent. So what my philosophy is kind of like a couple things. One... I got to take it one day at a time. That's mm-hmm. my thing is like I'm I'm going to have to take it one day at a time cuz it's going to just be you know, especially with a little kid. It's like it's it's slow. It's you know, you got to be patient. And so I'm I'm trying to take it one day at a time. And then the other thing is uh I feel like nothing is guaranteed with parenting. It mm-hmm. could be amazing, might not be. I might find that I really just get the parenting thing or it might be really difficult. I don't know. So all I'm anticipating is a new experience. That's all I'm excited for is like, this is going to be something new and it's going to be a new experience of relationship and love that I've never had before. And so we'll see what it, Mm. what it brings. But, uh, but yeah, I'm excited, you know, whenever I think, whenever you're having a kid and so far it's healthy you're happy so that's that's where i'm at i feel like we kind of wrap most things up is there anything else you want to get out there um no this has been great man good to chat again yeah Yeah. thanks yeah
That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Shad or see him in concert, keep an eye out for his tour schedule. He's heading across North America starting in November, right here in my hometown of Waterloo. If you enjoy the show, you can do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, but most of all, pass it on to someone else you think might like it. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Next time on the show, find out what it's like to spend two months couch surfing in Iran. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.